Okay. So good evening. Just want to add a quick addendum to last week's talk where I emphasized or encouraged or recommended we begin the year and maybe even end the year with kindness as our primary practice, kindness, generosity, but especially with kindness, uh, I just feel so much that developing a heart that is kind, kind toward ourselves, kind toward others, it creates the foundation for being able to accept our life as it is, be less in contention with life, and it's just such a good thing to, it is an ornament to ourselves, to others, it's, it helps love blossom in the world, just the habit of loving kindness. And if you still have some doubts about this, I wanted to add what the Buddha said about the, the 10 or 11 benefits of practicing loving kindness. He said, people who practice loving-kindness sleep peacefully. They wake peacefully. They dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire don't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So, just thought I would add that. But tonight I'd like to emphasize not so much kindness as the foundation for being able to live a life uh, freely and uh, in, a, uh, in a harmonious way, but the... Uh, the value of insight and wisdom as the foundation for living a free and harmonious life. If there is one thing that comes across maybe more than any other uh, focus of the Buddha's teaching, it is in seeing things as they are. That is the definition, that is the translation of the word vipassana, it is sometimes loosely translated as insight, but more it is seeing clearly, seeing with clear perception things as they are. And there's a phrase in the, in the Pali that's used, that the Buddha used, that is yata bhuta yanadasana, which means knowledge and vision of things as they are. The idea that it is through our misperceptions, it's through ignorance, it's through the lack of clear perception that we make messes of our lives. That if we see clearly things as they are, things like clinging make no sense. It makes no sense to cling when we understand that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. That things arise according to conditions, to multiple conditions, and not necessarily according to our will or wish. That everything that arises in our mind and body arises unbidden by itself. And to take it personally, to cling to it as me and mine, uh, makes no sense when 
we, for ourselves, see the selflessness of everything, how everything just happens. Now, theoretically, that doesn't sound... How is that possible? Everything happens by itself because it seems like I'm doing things. I'm making this happen. I'm thinking these thoughts. You're thinking your thoughts. But when we shift to a much more meditative perspective, we begin to notice that thoughts think themselves. That we don't necessarily ask our mind to think, as it said, think... 65,000 thoughts a day. It's said that that's how many we think. And it's also said that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. Now, do you think there's an agent in there saying, now think these same 60,000 thoughts today? No, they, they come unbidden. They come according to karma, to conditions, to habits. And they just pop up on their own, all by themselves. Now, you may have had the, had the heart-filled intent to keep your mind in the same location as your body during that sitting group, but I'll guarantee you, without any prompting of your own, a waterfall of memories, worries, plans, notions about yourself and everyone else in your life and the world came floating through your consciousness. Now, was there a thinker of those thoughts? So when we cling to that notion of, of agency when it comes to the thinking, this creates suffering. We start struggling. We start being, being in contention with this very natural process of thinking. Thinking is to our mind is like a sound is to the ear. It's completely natural. We don't ask sounds to appear, but they do. Thinking is the same way. Now from a certain vantage point, it, there is intentional thought. And it's actually encouraged in the moments that we, have, that we have enough presence of mind to plant seeds of wholesome thoughts, those thoughts of kindness that I spoke of last week, thoughts of, of generosity, thoughts of goodwill, to, to generate those kinds of thoughts intentionally in the moments where there is that creative, that, that openness enough, the presence of, enough to be able to, to plant seeds of wholesome thoughts. But whether those, when those show up again, or the fruits of those thoughts are completely out of our control. They just, they pop up when they do. The effects of those thoughts, they come when they will. It's not something that you can do. It's something that will just happen. It's the same with concentration. Many people come and say, I want to, I want to have a very concentrated mind, and my mind won't stay still. And... If you were to see how your mind actually works, minds are sometimes busy and sometimes they're still. And the fact that your mind won't stay still is because your mind has much more practice at being busy. So quite naturally it moves toward busyness and many other reasons why it may be busy. But when we recognize the busy mind is busy, the quiet mind is quiet, we come to some understanding of things as they are, yata bhuta, or things as they have come to be. See clearly, we see that it is not really possible to concentrate our mind. All it is is possible in the moments that we are open to direct our mind 
to direct our attention to our body or to whatever is present. And if we do that in the moments that we are aware, some point in the span of our practice, concentration will emerge because the conditions came together for that to happen. Not because of my will or my wish to concentrate my mind. It's not personal. It's a matter of conditions. But if we have the misperception thinking I should be able to concentrate my mind, then when our mind is busy we say I'm a, ma I'm a bad meditator. And then we build a whole new kind of clinging to the imagined version of ourselves of, called the meditator, who doesn't even exist anyway, that's a little, it's a little story. And then that imagined one starts fighting with reality, which is mind is not concentrated at this moment. Mind is busy. And pretty soon just the, the whole story of me mucks up the concentration as well. Instead, in our practice, we notice this is a mind that's concentrated. This is a mind that's not. This is a mind that's scattered. We learn to, find, to see each of them as they are. And if we see things as they are, we stop, in, and this happens in every moment of seeing things as they are, we stop being bothered by what it is that's true. We start noticing what's true instead of being bothered by what's true. And when we're no longer bothered by what's true, bothered by our busy minds, bothered by our unconcentrated minds, our minds quiet down. So that's just a few things in general that when we don't see clearly, we tend to cling to misperceptions, we tend to cling to, to false versions of ourselves. we tend to create more and more tension. But when we see things as they are, clinging to these misperceptions, clinging to things don't make any sense. We let go. We see things clearly. What the Buddha suggested that we that is the leading cause of clinging and misperception, clinging meaning suffering, meaning contraction, being, being in opposition to the way things are, is our lack of understanding of some of the basic realities of life. And the whole of our practice is, is learning how to open to the reality that, fa that we all face in our life. Not to be living in a dream, not to be living in a fantasy, but to see things as they are. Not to become miserable about things as they are, but the view is that if you see things as they are, that insight, that knowledge, that, that clear perception becomes the cause of the sure heart's release, the release of the heart from confusion, from clinging, from craving, from a kind of tension, being hostage to, to confusion. And with that comes a great sense of joy. The joy of a mind that's not reactive, not in contention. The joy of a mind that then becomes quite naturally very concentrated. The joy of a mind that can experience the, the flow of love and generosity. All of it is about joy. The whole of our practice is about joy and love. Those are the natural fruits of practice. It's not just about, uh, it's not some kind of cool, cold analysis of the truth of things. It's because if we see clearly, our hearts open. 
and then clinging and holding on tightly, as I said before, doesn't make any sense. So what are those things about life that somehow remain in that remain unrecognized in our lives what are those things that if we actually saw them clearly would free us from that um, torment of continually seeking some experience some place some something other than what's already here sitting on the very cushion that you're sitting in because if there's anything you realize in practice is you are each of us is what we are looking for can't be found anywhere else there is nowhere else everything else other than right here even in this room in this very moment everything else is imaginary so if you can't find it here you can't find it anywhere so those these things that we that we tend to overlook tend to be things that are not just tend to be are things that we can realize right here in this very room in this very life not we don't have to wait till seven lifetimes seven retreats high states of samadhi samadhi is the mind that's well concentrated but is really not only here but it is the very nature of our own hearts the very nature of our own condition so what did the Buddha say we just don't see first and foremost if you're here in spite of it being the great source of freedom and love it's also stressful it's stressful sitting here even sustaining attention through the duration of two hours of sitting and listening and dealing with your going to the bathroom and dealing with conversation and dealing with with tea and dealing with your mind it's stressful there are there are stresses that every single person who is born has to endure this is a given does that seem now did any of you think that yours that you were the only one who had stress today? Any of you think that you shouldn't have stress? Did any of you then make up a, a, a narrative? Or did any of you just spontaneously have the narrative? I'm having stress. There must be something wrong. There must be something wrong with me. So, so that very quickly, some unpleasant experience, some unpleasant physical experience, maybe some unwanted thoughts, unpleasant thoughts, some heaviness in our heart, some tension in our belly, some, ten, some pain in our knees, something going wrong with our body. Some moment of that is rather than be open to experienced as unpleasant as stressful hard to bear is quickly followed by I don't like this which is also hard to bear the I don't like this 
But that I don't like this then produces a little bit more tension and pretty soon that tension is spawning a whole story about how I'm going to, how I can't be happy here, I can't be happy now in this room, I can't be, there's no way I can find relief here, but if maybe I develop my practice a little more, if I listen to more Dharma talks on Dharma Seed, or eat more vegetarian food, or maybe take more sedatives, then maybe I won't have to think about it and I can, I can find relief that way. One way or another, our, our mind generates a whole uh, compulsion of strategies to somehow find relief from this, uh, this situation that is wrong. This is the opposite of being with things as they are, yata bhuta, seeing how things have come to be in this moment. Now, on the other hand, if I noticed my mind doing all of that, if I noticed the unpleasantness and I noticed the impulse to reject it, if I noticed the, my mind starting to tell the story, if that whole sequence was accompanied with mindful attention, every one of those experiences that I just described would be like, uh, it would be enlightened activity. It would be the display of awakened consciousness, doing just noticing what our minds do. Then it's possible to have a sense of humor about it. Otherwise, it seems like a very profound drama that's going on here even in this room with some unpleasantness. But that profound drama masks the fact that nothing's really happening. It's just some experience, some momentary, some experiences that are hard to bear. So the Buddha suggested that we begin to turn our attention toward how things actually are. Not to sugarcoat everything. Not to impose not to fall into some kind of delusion that everything is supposed to be pleasant and if it's unpleasant, there's something wrong and something wrong with me. But there is, if you were born, a measure of pleasant and unpleasant. There is pleasure, pain, gain and loss, praise and blame. You know, the whole, all the worldly winds that flow. And this is how it is. And open to it. Be um, find your composure with this. So anybody experiencing anything unpleasant right now? Anybody willing to say what it is? Without, you don't have to tell your whole life story, but... What's unpleasant? Is it physical? Okay, see for a moment if you can simply feel that unpleasantness. And even if you're having an unpleasant emotional reaction, feel the unpleasantness of that as well. Just notice its unpleasant quality. Don't add anything other than the whatever it is and its unpleasant quality. And for, for the moments that you're doing that, don't look back, don't touch the past, don't touch the future, just touch things as they are as they have come to be in this moment. 
and maybe somebody could say what happens when you do that. Any, anybody willing to speak of that? Too interested in things as they are, huh? Please. Changes a little bit. Not bothering you as much. Okay. So you just did a journey. Those of you who actually were willing to do this, you just did a journey into the real real-time exploration of what the Buddha described as the, as the first, really as the Four Noble Truths. And that's what he says that we fail to recognize, fail to realize, the Four, four Noble Truths. The first is that there are things that are hard to bear. If you're born, this comes with the territory. Birth is the leading cause of these things. And what, what makes it even more hard to bear that leads to a, 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 a persistent kind of mental suffering, mental reactivity to clinging, to, to clinging to ideas of how it should be, could be, uh, would be, to cling to what it means about me, what leads to a kind of uh, exacerbation of whatever it is that's happening, what moves it beyond the, the simple reality of things as they are, yata bhuta, things as they have come to be, what moves beyond that is this tendency of mind to move away from how things are to not see it clearly, to move away through disliking the unpleasant, through liking the pleasant, creating an inner tension that then further spawns that whole little universe of how do I get more of what's pleasant and how do I get away from what's unpleasant. And quite innocently, our our mind enters into that virtual world of time where our sense of well-being is no longer about realizing here in this very room your Buddha nature, that unshakable presence, that, that intrinsic luminosity, that nature of love itself that can only be, can only be unleashed in the full light of present time. Instead, our mind enters into the house of time, a narrow version of struggle, of strife, of, of the, really the world of the past, this whole story about our situation. And how it was that way, how it is that way, and whether it's going to be that way in the future. And we miss things just the way they are. This the Buddha called the cause of suffering. He called it often spoken about as this deep tendency of mind to want things to be different than the way they are. 
that then hardens into these fleeting reactions of dislike or, or liking that hardens into a, a, a kind of addictive reaction to things. And this produces more tension. And of course, if there's more tension, if we've, if we've gone down that road of reactivity, out of great, out of love, we want to find relief. But everything we're taught from the day we're born is not to seek relief right in the middle of things as they are, but to seek relief in the refrigerator, at the mall, as I brought along tonight in our next vehicle. This is the, and of course this is all done through masterful advertising. This one says, and I know some of you have heard this, this is, the title of it is Vanquility. Vanquility. Bask in the serene glow of the all-new Honda Odyssey with its spa-like interior. People and cargo live in peaceful harmony. A third row folds down with a single effortless touch. Available Bluetooth centers your fo- centers your focus on the road ahead while a perfectly balanced 28 highway miles per gallon V6 takes you on a journey of pure van bliss introducing the all new Honda Odyssey like no van before. So who can resist this vanquility? (laughs) So we live in a world of the second noble truth, constantly in pursuit of something different than what's going on. Constantly generating a mind that is in contention with things as they are. And no wonder... We feel this intense dis-ease, this increasing dis-ease that goes beyond just the basic inevitable struggles of sickness, old age, death, change, unreliability, which is how it is. So do we, how do we deal with that successfully? Do we stay in a state of constant rejection or grasping, or do we relax? Wake up right in the middle of it. Say, wow, it's really unpleasant tonight. This is really unpleasant, not being able to find a job. My heart is really heavy. And not add to that that this doesn't mean anything about me. I mean, not add to that the whole personality view that really is just clinging to an idea. Somehow, there's a kind of morbid a tendency to have this morbid attachment to negative self-views. There's some kind of pleasant feeling that comes from reassuring ourselves of how terrible we are. It's strange. But yet, it's, very, it's a very common human tendency. Please, in the back. I think you have to speak really loudly.
Absolutely. It's very useful to respond to our, our, our difficulties with, out of love to, to help ourselves and to... Yes, we... Yes, thank you. Yes. Yeah, the... Yes, thank you for saying that. This is not to be interpreted as don't do anything about your situations or about things that are, that are hard to bear. But the idea in our practice is to respond to it with wisdom, beginning with acceptance and then responding from the heart with what's needed rather than this reactivity and then the building of, the, of the, a mountain of contraction and clinging that actually makes dealing with our situation that much harder. So fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop with this, this very uh, debilitating tendency to continually um, cling to things other than the way they are, but to how we'd like them to be or should be, could be, would be. He reminded us, all things that he reminded us are things that can be realized here and now. And the third thing he reminded us is that there is an end to this. There is the possibility of letting go of this tight uh, fist of clinging and grasping, this intense reactivity to things, that it is possible in this very moment to experience the open space of acceptance to have the cessation, to have the... Right in this moment, and I have a feeling many of you did that. You described it yourself, that there's there's a loosening, there's a lessening of the suffering when we simply open to things as they are. And when this person in the back opened to the unpleasantness that they were experiencing, all of a sudden it didn't bother them as much anymore. This is a mini version of what the Buddha called the cessation of suffering, the end of suffering. Now, perhaps the sensation or the mood didn't change, but the relationship to it, the reaction to it, is very changeable. And it is so that our suffering we see has not so much to do with what's happening. It has everything to do with how it is that it's being met whether or not we're opening to things as they are. So there is an end to suffering, and the Buddha's prescription for, for this diagnosis, that there is this possibility of an end, is to realize it. Realize it moment to moment. So this vignette, we open to what's difficult. We see whatever in our mind is preventing us from, from actually opening to it feeling the reaction, the clinging, we open to that as well. And in the opening, in the applying of the fourth noble truth, which is there's a path to this awakening, we apply attention and kindness to whatever it is that we find in our experience right here. We can know in real time for ourselves that there's an end and that there's a path to the end of suffering. And whether it takes, whether we have a complete 
sense of emancipation, it doesn't matter. It all is fulfilled by every moment that we learn to face our life the way it is. And as I began this evening, the whole process, the whole arduous process of of opening to our life, opening to the difficulties of life, it is, uh, it's aided by having a kind uh, attitude, having a gentleness, having patience, having all the, the receptive qualities of... Um, but also the active, the willing, the curious, the interested quality. So it's, it's very active, also very receptive. And... So that's our path. This is the Four Noble Truths. And I think if we really get, if we really see this for what it is, we'll, we will all, moment to moment, know uh, that which is difficult, the cause of it, the end of it, and the path that leads to the end of it. Gendon Rinpoche, wonderful Tibetan Lama, reminds us so that we don't complicate it too much, that it's all about staying right here. He says that happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with, become attached to, it passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes, and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of the spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Emaho, marvelous. Everything happens of itself. So let's just sit quietly.
May all beings see things as they are. May all beings come into peace and harmony with things as they are. May all beings experience the sure heart's release. And may our practice tonight, our practice every day, practice of presence, our practice of kindness, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all. And especially tonight, if there's been any benefit to our being together, that we give it away freely and wish everyone happiness, the cause of happiness, end of suffering, the causes of suffering, and end with a deep wish that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that is without sorrow here and now, not lift out of this moment to find relief. May all beings be free. Please be patient for a few moments. I have a couple announcements. Uh, next week, uh, you will be uh, you will have the great good fortune of having Anushka Fernandopoli sitting with you. Uh, for those of you who I, I know, many of you have sat with Anushka, and those of you who know my friend Eugene Cash, she has been his uh, number one substitute since his his bicycle injury, his brain injury, and uh, she is a wonderful teacher. She sat in here several times, and uh, she'll be with you next week. She's also on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council, and she's a, a, a great being, and I think you'll thoroughly enjoy her. She has a masterful use of metaphors. Also, and I'll be leading a retreat next week, that's why I won't be here, and I'll be back the following week. And then a, a reminder, as usual, that our room rental continues to be $150 a week, $600 a month. So your generosity, your practice of dana uh, toward uh, supporting us being here is appreciated. And, any, and whether it's me or Anushka, we offer the teachings as our practice of generosity. And uh, the invitation and what's kept the, the practice alive for 2,500 plus years is those who receive teachings make as your practice the support of the requisites of those who offer them. So if you feel to practice generosity, the basket is great, uh, a great place to put your resources for both teacher Donna and room rental Donna. And thank you in advance. And Madison has a brief announcement. This is also about generosity of spirit to be patient and listen to her need. She has, she has housing needs. She's been in, uh, in very changeable housing, sometimes for a month at a time, and is looking for permanent housing. Uh, for, do you want me to say more about the... Okay, please say it, if you can speak loudly. Yes. So please be mindful and see if you can open to things as they are with kindness this week. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.